we had an actual debate in Ohio, an actual debate by two candidates for higher office. Amazing. And it's the first thing we're talking about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And we're going to talk about Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. Let's get moving. What were the fiery points in the debate last night, Laura, between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance, who are battling to replace Rob Portman in the U.S. Senate? I'm not sure there weren't any fiery moments. It sounds like everything that they talked about, they were in each other's face about. What, whether they were talking about abortion or immigration, these were these got really heated. So a lot of the same talking points as they've brought up before, but really showed a lot of contempt for each other and talking right directly to each other, too. That's that's what you should have in a debate. They should be able to engage with each other because it reveals how they respond to tense moments, which you want to know that uh, somebody you're electing is can deal with the high pressure. The, the, for me, the, the oddest point of it, and it, and I'm basing this on, on several accounts, including Andrew Tobias's good story on, on it last night, is J.D. Vance introduced his children into the debate when it became a a discussion about immigration and then attacked Tim Ryan for using his children against him. And I just didn't see how you could make that pivot. No, right. Exactly. It was just like, I brought up my kids and then I'm yelling at you for even mentioning your kids, my kids. And then Tim Ryan's like, I didn't bring up your kids. And so there's a lot of back and forth. I mean, they talked about the ass kissing comment about Donald Trump and uh, Vance's response was like, well, he was joking. I mean, and then Vance is the one bringing up Pelosi saying you love Pelosi. And I love Ryan's comeback. Well, if you want to talk about Pelosi, move back to California and run against Pelosi. Like we're in Ohio, which I thought was a nice Nice way to turn it back on him. You know, the whole you just got here from Silicon Valley. The uh, the immigration issue was introduced by by one of the questioners. They brought up replacement theory, this idea mm-hmm. that that Democrats want to replace all the white people with immigrants. It's one of those dumb things Republicans try to argue. But what was surprising was when Vance said, hey, hey, immigration isn't about race. There are white immigrants, too, which is preposterous when he's pushing about the border. I mean, when you're talking about the border, you're talking about Mexico and that's not white people crossing the border. He seems like he keeps running away from his hard-fought positions on abortion. He's an absolutist, except not really Right, because we're in the general election, right? And I feel like these are the things that he set up that made people vote for him in the primary, and now he's trying to walk it back. Like, he won't say exactly how he feels about abortion because he's saying, well, incest is different at three weeks than 39 weeks, and, and only the voters need to know. And it's like, well, why... This is where you tell the voters what you would vote for in Congress. What do you believe? And he's refusing to be nailed down on anything. Well, he stakes such a hardline position when he was running to get Trump's endorsement. Right. And, you know, the badge for that is having to stand on a stage with him while Trump announces to the crowd that that J.D. Vance has been kissing his ass. What a great moment for a candidate. <laughs> right. I, I, I give Ryan credit because it sounds like he just went right at him. You know, Ryan is a very straight shooter. He hasn't been 
all over the place on issues. And he just kept calling him out. He called him out over and over again. He said, you know, you originally compared Trump to Hitler. And Vance is in the background saying, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. When he did. I mean, right. there, there are and- tweets about this. So he's he's up on stage lying then saying that's not true. That's not true. When right. The- and then it, it, it turns into like a playground fight. Like, well, I'm going to roll the tape. Well, you do that. Well, I'm lying. Well, you're not. And I don't know how helpful that is for voters, but it does show you that they're really getting under each other's skin, that they can't keep up the facade of politeness. But you've got to stand on truth, which Ryan did and Vance did not. That's the that's the decision here. Do you want somebody that you cannot count on to to be a straight shooter? I mean, he's denying stuff that's in the record, clearly in the record in the heat of the debate. What would he do in the heat of a debate on the Senate floor? Would he fold up and and cave and do denials? (laughs) It's a is it look, it's I'm really glad that the debate was held. It's great that Ohio gets to see this. These are the candidates for Senate, people have a genuine choice. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of Ryan and Vance, Ryan is the clear winner in attracting campaign donations, both in number of donations and total amounts. With Vance trailing so badly in the money game, Lisa, he's needed some outside help. What's the story of the latest in spending for these two candidates? Yeah, Saturday was the federal deadline for campaign finance reports uh, for money raised from July through September. And Ryan continues to dominate Vance in the fundraising game. He raised over $17 million in the July through September uh, window. He spent more than that, though. He spent nearly $19 million, about $13 million in TV ads and $1.4 million in Facebook ads. Uh, Vance, in that same time period, only raised about $7 million dollars. He spent three and a half million dollars, about 1.8 million on TV and only about $240,000 in online ads. But here's the rub. Ryan, of course, has been running commercials nonstop where Vance kind of disappeared from the airwaves for a while. So Vance has $3.4 million left in his war chest. Ryan only has $1.4 million left in his account. So, and we've got a month to go till the election. So I'm sure we'll see a lot of spending between now and then. But if you're looking at totals, Ryan has raised $39 million throughout the campaign. He spent $37 million of that. Vance only raised $10.5 million, but he spent six point three. million. But let's not forget that he got $28 million back in August from a, a Mitch McConnell-aligned super PAC. And then more recently, he got $2 million from a Trump-aligned super PAC. So he's getting big Republican money, whereas Ryan's more the small-dollar guy. Well, and look, you got to give Ryan credit. You don't want to end the campaign with a lot of unspent money. We're three weeks from today, right? Three weeks from today is election day. So the fact that he's spending his money to get his message out there, that's pretty wise. That's what you would hope the candidate would do. I'm a little bit surprised that Vance has so much left. TV time is, I imagine, mostly bought up. So I don't know where you go. Maybe social media or, hey, you could always advertise in The Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's today in Ohio. We have spent a lot of time talking about elections this season, and this podcast is going to be a lot about elections, but we've spent almost no time discussing the statewide races for attorney general, 
auditor, secretary of state, and treasurer. These are powerful people. We have some time today, so let's take them one at a time. Layla, let's start with the attorney general. Well, as Jeremy Pelzer points out in a great story that he put together, the attorney general's race is probably the most contentious among the four down-ballot statewide executive races this year. We've, we've got Republican incumbent Dave Yost campaigning on his work fighting human trafficking. He filed suit also against those implicated in the House Bill 6 bribery scandal, and he helped reach an $800 million plus opioid settlement between local governments and drug distributors and a manufacturer. Then we've got Democrat Jeff Crossman. He's a Parma attorney who's been a state representative since 2019. He says Yost hasn't done enough to go after those involved with the HB6 scandal, which incidentally Crossman voted for, but now says he regrets. And <laughs> and he criticizes you. Yeah, whoopsie. Um, at least he, you know, at least he's got a mea culpa. You know, a lot of people are defensive about stuff like that. So, um, and he criticizes Yost for for pushing a federal judge to allow Ohio's heartbeat abortion ban to take effect minutes after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So. How Yost handled issues related to abortion in Ohio, I suspect, is really going to be a make or break for him in, in this race. Yeah, on, on HB6, I, I don't know if that criticism is well-founded. The federal government, the Justice Department, is doing that investigation. If Yost started to insert himself now, you could almost see that as meddling on behalf of yeah. his party. You know, the just I mean, the Justice Department is moving very slowly. I mean, we can't, I can't understand why this is taking as long as it is. But I understand why Yost would stay out of that. And look, let's face it, the heartbeat bill was passed by the legislature. The minute the Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, he kind of has a duty to the That's state true. to go in and get that law put into place. I don't know that you can you can damn him for that because it is his job to represent the state. The, the thing with Yost, he, he's, he's a fascinating guy, right? He's a former journalist. He's a rock and roller. He does all these cool things. And he's very smart. If When you talk to him, you, you immediately are struck by how smart he is which is why it's such a problem that he panders to the lowest common denominator with his gross press releases about the, <laughs> the stuff he's doing. He inserts himself into cases in other states that he has no business doing so he can look like Mr. Trumpy Trump. And that's the shame of it, because he's way smarter than that. Why not just be true to who he is? And that that's the problem. Crossman, though, I don't think is landing any blows. I don't understand quite why. Yeah, I don't know either. But to your point about the, the grossness of the press releases, maybe that's the genius of it. I mean, that's that's yeah. really <laughs> that's, that's kind of the yeah, thing that Trump uh, cashed in on. Right. So ride that until there's there are no fumes what? left in that train. <laughs> Yeah, but you're you're trying to appeal to people's basest instincts instead of trying to rise them up and have intelligent discussion. That that when you're as smart as Dave Yost, you should be trying to raise the level of discussion, not play nana nana boo boo. It, it, every time you get one of those, you just roll your eyes because you know he's better than that and he's pandering. Mm -hmm. But his ads are so upbeat, they're almost kind of funny. He's sitting there with his wife making jokes and everybody saying, yo, yo. <laughs> Have you heard the radio jingle? Like, I felt no. like I had dropped back in time 40 years. Like, I don't, I can't sing it to you, but I was just like, oh, wow. I had no idea this existed. <laughs> I don't know. Is this, I mean, is his, are they going to follow the DeWines? Is his wife going to start sending out recipes and they're going to have a picnic at their house? Uh, he might have eyes on the governor's mansion. <laughs> It's today in Ohio.
Next, let's talk about the Secretary of State. Lisa, this is another very important one because there are times when you think our current Secretary of State has had a record of running good elections. Ohio has had decent elections, but he's so sleazy. He keeps trying to sow doubt about elections elsewhere, and he has taken really sleazy steps to keep candidates off the ballot that even the Republican-dominated Supreme Court has rejected. He's really changed his tune. I mean, I wrote in a roundtable months ago, it's like, well, the real Frank LaRose, please stand up. <laughs> because as you recall, you know, the election was canceled two days before it was supposed to happen in March of 2020 because of the pandemic. And he did a... a great job of doing dealing and having an election despite that. But, uh, you know, the Secretary of State is so important and so many um, far-right Republicans are focusing on this in other states because, you know, the Secretary of State oversees elections, they approve the ballot wording, and and also here in, in Ohio, LaRose serves on the redistricting committee. So Frank LaRose has been an incumbent uh, in the Secretary of State since 2018, but he was previously an Ohio senator for uh, eight years. Um, he, uh, part of his campaign platform, it sounds innocuous. He wants to make voter registration more accessible. He wants to have online absentee ballot requests, but he is uh, wanting to form or did just form a public integrity task force with subpoena powers that would investigate election crimes. But our big question is, why did he go along with the gerrymandered maps after previously calling them asinine. I think that's the biggest question here. Yeah, I, look, we've talked and talked about the failure of these elected officials on the redistricting commission to follow the will of the voters. I mean, we all went to the polls. We changed the Ohio Constitution based on the legislature promising that this would be the way toward fair districts. And he had the chance to be a leader in this, to get with Mike DeWine. And Bob Kopp and Huffman, they were, they were never going to do the right thing. They were trying to keep the, the books cooked. I mean, it was very sleazy what they did. But LaRose could have gotten with DeWine, could have gotten with the auditor, who we'll talk about in a minute, and done the right thing. And they didn't. They, they dropped the ball in the worst way possible. They took an oath to uphold the Constitution of Ohio, and they violated that oath. I mean, in some ways, you could argue that he should have been bounced out of office. Does, does he have any real opposition here? Not really, but he has two people opposing him. Uh, Democrat Chelsea Clark, who is a councilwoman in Forest Park, which is a suburb of Cincinnati, I believe. She's been there since 2017, also a small business owner, and she leads an education nonprofit. So her platform is kind of similar. I mean, she wants to expand early voting hours and days, and maybe not LaRose doesn't want to do that. She also wants to push for same-day voter registration uh, or automatic voter registration as well. And would like to create an office of entrepreneurship with the treasurer and the Department of Commerce to help business startups. And then there's an independent, Terpeshore Morris, who is a Cleveland podcaster, a Navy veteran, and a QAnon adherent. She says that we should get rid of all voting machines and have paper ballots only. And she wants to see regional Secretary of State offices as kind of functioning as kind of a state-run chamber of commerce. The It would be nice if in at least one of these elections there was accountability for people failing the voters on the redistricting commission. Uh, I wonder if having the, the conservative kind of wacko podcaster in this race pulls some votes from LaRose and opens a window there. We'll have to see. 
It's today in Ohio. The state auditor's race is not as controversial as the previous two, except for the fact that the auditor was also part of the redistricting commission that defied the voters and did not do the job required in the Constitution. Laura, who is challenging incumbent Keith Faber? Well, uh, it is a Democrat named Sappington, and he is running against Faber. He basically says that... um, he would ramp up anti-corruption efforts by establishing a public corruption task force and wants to conduct more special audits. And he would push for congressional and legislative districts that are competitive and don't split up neighborhoods. So, I mean, you could do that and still have unfair districts, which we do. So hopefully he would try to make this more of a competitive district. So, you know, Keith Faber's really well known in Ohio politics. He was an Ohio Senate president. So he had immense power shaping state laws and policies. And this is Sappington's first run for statewide office. Though I guess he got some attention in 2018 when he ran against Republican State Representative Jay Edwards. He was called the perfect red state Democrat by the New York Times. Yeah, and Democrats have looked at Faber for a long time as a formidable foe. They've nicknamed him Darth Faber. So I he'll probably win. But again, he dropped the ball. He didn't do what he took a vow to do, which was to uphold the Constitution. It's today in Ohio. I don't believe we have any controversy in the race for state treasurer. Bob Sprague has been uneventful, which is what you want in the guy handling all the money. So let's mention this one quickly, Laura. So, yeah, he's the state treasurer, essentially serves as state's banker. That's $21.5 billion in state investments. Also appoints a member to each of the Ohio five public retirement system boards. Uh, Scott Scherzer is the Democrat running against him. He's been mayor of Marion since 2008. He was a 2018 gubernatorial candidate's running mate for less than a month before Connie Pillage dropped out of the race. He's a former teacher, has a bachelor's degree in social studies from the University of Toledo, and he really wants to promote this AgLink program. Program, um, and appoint pension board members who are either retirees or actively paying into the pension fund. He also wants to make more appearances around the state and voice his opinion on issues. So it sounds like he wants to be a little more political. He wants to talk about abortion rights, which he says he can because it's an economic development issue. Yeah. You know, we've had jackasses in this job before. <laughs> we had Josh Mandel and we had some other people that were bad. Bob Sprague has done what he's supposed to do. He's been a steady hand guiding the Treasury with no controversy. I suspect he will win handily. It's day in Ohio. A story in our Cleveland's Promise series this week involved discipline and how the Cleveland schools are moving away from traditional forms and looking more towards interventions. The upshot? Getting suspended does not mean sitting at home. Layla, how does it all work? Well, yeah, like you said, traditionally, we know that behavioral problems at school can lead to out-of-school suspension. That's how it's been since the beginning of time. Fighting on school grounds or some other serious infraction of the school's code of conduct was always punishable by several days spent sitting at home, not learning, and, and perhaps even triggering an academic death spiral from, from which, you know, a student would really have a hard time recovering. So recognizing that Cleveland schools have changed their model in the past decade. They now keep kids in school when they misbehave and, and send them to what they call the planning center. A hundred schools have these throughout the district. When a student is referred to the planning center, they work with the planning center instructional assistant who is trained to help that student 
regroup and figure out what's really going on. They spend time working through any emotional turmoil that might have given rise to the incident in question. They they talk about making better choices. The student spends time writing and reflecting upon the situation. In other words, it, it's a much more productive and corrective way to address bad behavior than simply sending them home to, you know, whatever, play video games for three days. And, and not only that, but the idea is that the planning center is a welcoming enough place that students feel comfortable referring themselves there. So if the day is a struggle for them, if they're having a hard time controlling their emotions, the hope is that students will cultivate the self-awareness to know when they should avail themselves of the planning center resources and go there for a break. And in tomorrow's installment of Cleveland's Promise, readers are going to see the planning center at Elmira Elementary School in action when one of our students who we've been following is referred there after she is caught making a TikTok video at school. You know, this debate, I feel like this debate's gone on my entire life, even when I was a kid, that there there was the idea of if you send them home, there's nothing that works. You just remove the problem from the school, but it hurts the kid. Right. They set up, in some districts, they set up rooms where they'd send the bad kids. And then unless you had some kind of programming, it became bedlam in those rooms and police would be called. I So it sounds like in this case, they really are heavy duty on the programming, right. that there is is a strong hand by the school. They have the personnel they need to do it, to do the yeah, job. Yeah, well, and, and they're trained to handle these things and to kind of uh, help the kid decompress and address the underlying issue. I mean, I think, you know, especially when we're talking about things like, you know, sometimes violence erupts in school, kids get into fights and things like that. There's always something that is at the heart of that. And this is an acknowledgement of that instead of just you know, tossing the kid away, throwing, you know, making them go home and, and sit there for three days, which, which really deprives them of, of the opportunity to learn from that experience or to dig deeper and, and, uh, um, and grow. So, and, and this is part of, you know, they call it the human wear department. Um, and, and this goes beyond the planning center. They have these other initiatives. Uh, one of them, which is my absolute favorite is the wave peer conflict resolution program where they had, they train, uh, they train students to help each other resolve their conflicts. So there are conflict medi mediators who are students who sit down with their peers and help them work through their problems with one another. And it, I just love that concept and it's been proven to be successful and we're going to have stories that show how that works too. Yeah, this series, I, I'm getting so much good feedback from readers about it. I mean, what we ran it five days a week for the first two weeks, and now it's two days a week, and I actually got yelled at for that. They wanted five <laughs> days a week, which isn't sustainable. But I do think we're we're accomplishing the goal of showing people what the education system is about more so than the traditional education reporting. That was what we set out to do. Let's illuminate what the challenge are for, for educating kids in poverty and how they do it. And the insights that we've gotten from Hannah and Cameron are, are just tremendous. So we'll be continuing this for a long time to come, and we'll be talking about it on Today in Ohio. Cars are some of the most expensive things people own, and some police departments are seeing a trend in thefts from Cleveland's western suburbs. What are police telling us, Lisa? So now that it's happening on the west side, it's finally news, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Just zing. Zing. Wow. Wow. I mean, come okay. on. I mean, I read the Sun Messenger blotter every Thursday. 
This has been going on in east side suburbs for a couple of years now, although it did start out as car break-ins. But then it, you know, it progressed to cars being stolen because people are leaving their key fobs in their cars. So there's been a rash of stolen cars in Bay Village and Westlake. And of course, these usually happen at night, taken right from people's driveways. There were five stolen in Westlake last month. And Westlake Police Captain Gerald Vogel says, yeah, it's happening all over. He says people are leaving their cars unlocked with the keys and valuables inside. And we've actually had our mayor has actually called, you know, we have an information line that you can sign up for. And he said, people, please don't leave your keys in your car. Don't leave valuables in your car. Come on. We, we've seen on our camera, uh, there have been a couple of times over the past few years where there'll be a couple of guys going down the street, checking the doors of cars parked in driveways. And fortunately, mm-hmm. when they've done it, the doors are locked. I don't get leaving keys in the car. Look, I grew up in New Jersey, so we're really protective. But but why on earth would you leave your keys in the car? It, it's almost a guarantee. It's a sign in the window saying, steal me. Do you That's- think it's that like people have the new cars that don't need to put the keys in the ignition? And so they just forget, you know, because they're just in the car somewhere and the car starts and they forget to take them out with them? But you, but but come on, don't you have the habit of always locking your car? I mean, if I, I go into a convenience store, my car's locked. I mean, I, there's no time when the car isn't locked if I'm not in it. And I just don't get this idea of, of making it easy. Look, they can steal a car even when you do everything right. But this is making it easy. And mm-hmm. they just wander down the street pulling, pulling door handles in the middle of the night. And they get one, they go in, they go it. You're right, Lisa. There were a lot of break-ins that way. But I'm just surprised people aren't getting that message. Well, and, you know, and whenever you you tell people, don't do this, this is what attracts them. I mean, there were ring videos of carloads of kids just being let out of cars and walking up and down the street in these east side suburbs. So it's like they knew it was like fertile grounds for theft. So, you know, you can't really throw the victim card when you're making it so easy for them to do it. Exactly. It's today in Ohio. Is it me being dense, Layla, or does Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibbs request for proposals for modernizing the city's police, fire, and paramedic services a bit cryptic? What does he want to do? It's absolutely cryptic. And in fact, even after a city spokesman did call reporter Courtney Astolfi back yesterday, he didn't provide any further details. He said that the city made its its request for proposals intentionally vague. <laughs> So stupid. The idea was to provide consulting firms wide latitude in determining how to modernize fire and EMS, he said, in hopes of attracting a variety of proposals. So in an emailed statement, safety director Carrie Howard also said, modernization can mean a whole host of things depending on who is asked, and public safety would not want to adversely influence the process by giving specifics. The thing is, We know modernization can mean a lot of things depending on who's asked. And we're asking you, Carrie Howard, because you're in charge of the safety forces. So what is it you're looking for? It seems you would need some kind of parameters around this RFP, something to kind of more narrowly tailor the work. 
I'm, I, this makes no sense. I, I'm suspicious that they have a favored contractor, that there's somebody they want to get this that they've talked to, and that contractor knows exactly what they're looking for and will tailor the RFP, and everybody else is scratching their heads. You've got to put some kind of parameter around it. Is this aimed at reducing the police, mm-hmm. the number of police officers, number of firefighters? Is it aimed at changing the geographic approach. I mean, what What is the ultimate goal here? You can't just say modernization. I mean, modernization could be robots for crying out loud. What does, what does Justin Bibb want to do? Remember when he ran, he said, I've studied police practices across this country and I know I can make them more efficient by getting people away from the desks and onto the street. He's done research. He has ideas to do it this way, it's very suspicious. Yeah, the spokesman said that the recommendations could range from small operational tweaks, like how many ambulances or fire trucks are deployed at certain times, to big changes like combining the fire and EMS divisions. But this is we're at the the RFP phase. So when those proposals come in, how do you decide upon which one best fits your needs if you don't know what you're looking for? right? I mean, they could all be acceptable and good. So how are you going to decide which one is best if you don't have parameters at the start? That that doesn't make sense to me. This is one where you wish city council and Blaine Griffin would stand up and say, "What, what are you doing? I mean, the city council will ultimately make decisions on this and I, I guarantee you there are people on city council that have a clear vision of what they think these these services should do. And you would just think one of them would stand up and say, wait, wait, don't, don't just do some random throw darts at the wall. Let's think about what we think it should be based on what residents tell us and seek proposals that fit a vision. This, this is just crazy. I mean, if you wanted to have a meeting of, of minds and say, hey, look, we're thinking of retooling our safety services what would you like and have have a big brainstorm session and and ideas flying great but like you said this is the rfp i mean people are going to put time in to the expenses and things they would do to make it happen we have no clue what yeah, it is yeah right the the other half of the rfp is dealing with figuring out how many police officers we really need in the department to effectively serve the city and that's a little bit more straightforward than this whole modernization of ems and fire aspect of it because you know we have been short so many officers in the city and and the RFP for the staffing analysis is is in keeping with a recommendation from the court appointed monitoring team for the city's everlasting consent decree so you know that team suggested taking a look at numbers and deployment and and given the reality of how hard it is to recruit enough cops to meet the desired staffing number and how quickly the city's lost officers so at least there's some sense of what they're aiming for with that piece of it. But as far as modernization goes, that's like, huh? <laughs> this is why we have one of our best reporters dedicated full-time to covering City Hall. Because this is this is the kind of story you get by having expertise and asking questions. Courtney Estoffi spotted this wrote the story. People would not be aware of it were it not for the dedication of that resource. Good stuff. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. That's it for today in Ohio for a Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Speaking of Courtney Estafi, she'll be here tomorrow. Thank you for listening. <laughs>